0: You know, there is this um, temptation, you see it throughout uh, the history of the church for these 2,000 years, you saw it in the history of Israel, Uh, but uh, professed believers are often tempted uh, to follow the teaching that is against Scripture itself there is some sort of nuance or some sort of marketing or some sort of a new idea that has never been come up before, and, and people will tend to go after that. And the church in Corinth was like that. The Apostle Paul planted that church. He lived there for almost two years himself, day in and day out. He taught them doctrine. He taught them how to worship the Lord. He taught them to forsake idols. They taught, he taught them to live morally. He leaves. And then so-called super apostles come in, false teachers. You kind of brought in this mixed bag of Christianity and Judaism and, and mysticism and Greek philosophy and, and started to pull the people away from the Apostle Paul, which meant pulling them away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the themes that we've seen as we've been in this journey throughout Second Corinthians that the greatest attacks come from within with the church of Jesus Christ, not from without. And the Apostle Paul is going to give instructions on how to handle that today with his primary emphasis on the fact that we need to perfect holiness with ourselves and within our own congregation. Let me go to the Lord in prayer and let's unpack this amazing passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 7-1 as we look at this principle of perfecting holiness Lord, I do come before you in faith, Lord, and we thank you so much for the wonderful, uh, the wonderful letter of 2 Corinthians. If the Corinthian church had not been so dysfunctional, so prone to error, we would not have this overwhelming blessing of this letter. Uh, like so many of the letters, so many of the great councils of the church, they came because of heretical teaching, they came because of uh, uh, immoral behavior. They came because the Christians needed a good slap down. <laughs> so we're grateful for the, the depth and the power of the Word of God that we see in this amazing, most personal of all Paul's epistles. Let us not waste these few moments we have together going through these verses. I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit that it would just fill us, apply these truths to our heart. Give each one of us at least one nugget of truth that will help us to walk in faith this week and to uh, be so excited about the faith that we live in that we cannot remain silent about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we would want to go tell it on the mountain and be as light to a dark world. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you will notice, uh, uh, we've got a home group helps insert for you that might help you kind of track along where, where we're going with this passage, and um, I'm going to read the passage in its entirety, and then we'll go back through and take each one of the, the four sections here. So I would encourage you to turn to your copy of the Word of God. You know, that's one of the things that keeps our church honest. There's an automatic accountability every time you open your Bibles and you see if what we are teaching is true or not. So we want you to do that. We encourage that. Uh, so please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6.14, and we'll go through 7, one. Hear now the word of the Lord. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belio? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Again, we're basically going to look at four different sections here. We're going to see there's a one command here in the first part of, uh, of 14a, and that is to not be bound with uh, unbelievers. And then we're going to see in the second part five questions that serve as illustrations. Then we're going to see six supporting uh, snippets of Old Testament verses, and then we see one overall purpose in seven one something of a summary of what 's been said before, and that is that we are to be perfecting holiness. This principle of perfecting holiness of being separated for that purpose is somewhat lost on many many americans it 's interesting one of our uh, deacons sent me this uh, uh, this uh, study that had been recently done. Uh, from the Barna Group that often studies uh, Christians and what they believe and all that. And one of the principles was that, I don't know if you're aware of this, but 69% of our population says they're Christians. But according to this study, only about 6% actually have a biblical worldview. What's a biblical worldview? A worldview would be defined as an intellectual, emotional, and spiritual decision-making filter. So in our entire population, there's only six percent that actually see the invasion of Ukraine, uh, uh, taxation, whatever it might be, uh, uh, COVID restrictions. And they through a biblical filter, a filter of understanding of what is wrong and what is right, what is true, what is not true, and that sort of thing. And as they were going through this study, they said 61% of those who identified as Christians said that I believe that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect, and just creator of the universe who still rules over the universe today. Amen to that. That's a good, that's a good statement, but it breaks down real fast. Large majorities of self-identified Christians also reported many beliefs that are not in harmony with that biblical teaching. For instance, 72% argue that people are basically good. 72% people be, b- believe that be, people are basically good. We're, we got a, so many students are gone. We've got a little bit of a shortage of the nursery in these next couple of weeks. I'd like to call these people and encourage them to come keep the nursery at our church. It would probably turn them around. No offense to all you parents. Uh, 72% be, people are basically good, they just make mistakes every now and then. 66% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. Yo, that's just polytheistic paganism. Oh, Jesus, we like Christianity, but you got other options. 64% say that all religious faiths are equal value. There's not really, when it comes to value, there's no difference between Buddhism, Islam, animism, uh, paganism, or Christianity. 58% believe that a person is good enough or does, not, uh, does good enough things, they can earn their way into heaven. 60% of the people out there in the church today think you get to heaven by being good. There could not be anything that, that is so counter to the doctrines of Christianity than that. The Christian says, I'm not good. I need a Savior. You don't need a Savior if you can be good enough. But maybe one of the most shocking ones, this is probably the influence of the Internet and Eastern religion stuff, 57% believe in karma. Karma. That is Hinduism. That is Buddhism, Eastern religions. Basically, why has this happened? Well, I think part of it is because the church has devoted itself to entertaining people instead of teaching people, of filling seats instead of filling hearts and minds. Most people get their theology from Oprah instead of the Apostle Paul. One great old writer said this, the reason some of us are such poor specimens of Christianity is because we have no almighty Christ. We have Christian attributes and expectations, but there is no abandonment to Jesus Christ. You see, once you really meet Jesus, you realize just that your life has changed and you want to know truth you don't want to be deceived by errors, and you want to abandon yourself to Christ. But that title of Christian has to be challenged when you look at stuff like this, uh, the, the myriad of different cultural things that people embrace. So the Apostle Paul gives us this one command here in verse 14a, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And you know This is the old um, uh, King James translation, which is actually the literal Greek translation of do not be unequally yoked. And uh, the New American Standard, you know, we tend to not, it's been years since I've ever yoked a couple of oxen together, Uh, but uh, we just don't do that anymore, right? So the New American Standard has probably helped update that language a little bit, do not be bound together with uh, unbelievers. Of course, the Apostle Paul is going back to Deuteronomy where there was a, 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 a rule against yoking an oxen with a donkey uh, because they're so different in their size and their gait and that kind of thing. It would be a, an unparalleled disaster to try to do that. So he brings that p- principle in, and, and he basically is bringing that principle in into the context of Christianity. Now, this is important. This is one of those times when we need to teach what does this mean and what does it not mean. Because we all have to be honest here. We have messed this principle up in the past. And we go back to one of our principles of basic principle of, of hermeneutics. How are we to understand and read Scripture? What's the message? How do we read the message? And that is that the context is king. What is the context? Well, if you've been tracking along with us with 2 Corinthians, and I've already mentioned this morning, Paul is going against the false teachers who have persuaded many of the Corinthians to follow them instead of the gospel. They're about to abandon the gospel. And with that, we have behavioral issues and things like that. So the context is in, is, is in the situation at Corinth where people are being bound together, yoked with false teachers within the church. Now that's helpful because, can we be honest, the church has beat people up with this verse in the past as well. There is a principle of wisdom here, but the command relates to false teachers within the church. So he's not offering a template on how you treat people who aren't Christians in general. Um, he is uh, talking about how unbelievers within the church itself is not meant uh, always to separate yourself from unbelievers. Jesus himself was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It does not mean separating from people who don't have your same standard or your same behavior or your same nuance in terms of uh, theology. It's not an excuse for you just to give up on the world and become a monk and to be done with people. People have often used this uh, principle to to kind of separate themselves and and to keep an an arm's length for people. The Apostle Paul said, For I am free, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win all the more. It does not mean that your particular doctrines as it gives you a right just to pick and choose uh, which Christians you hang out with. Tolerance is a virtue. It's a Christian virtue, but it does have limits. So it does mean that you separate yourself, that is, you're not influenced by unrepentant professing Christians or people who claim to be Christians, but pollute the church with false teaching and bad morals. Well, what do those people look like? Go back to the Barna survey. You start visiting a church and the elder gets up and starts talking about how wonderful karma is. You run like a scalded dog. You don't wait for the coffee, you don't wait, eat the fellowship meal. That church has got issues. Paul is really primarily addressing his opponents, okay? So he's basically trying to make sure that, uh, that, that, uh, that we are going to maintain the purity of the doctrine and the behavior of this church. He's not giving us permission to split hairs and just write people off who disagree with you there's lots of people there's there's a big tent Christianity that we can all support each other out and then we can narrow that down and we do need to narrow it down when it comes to ser- people serving as officers uh, people becoming members and that sort of thing but this is not a permission and this is not permission to become a holy snob so let's take care in that regard then we look at five questions that serve as his illustrations. He goes on with 14b to 16a here. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Uh, and, you know, this idea of this partnership is a synonym for fellowship. Uh, so we, what he's saying is Christians are righteous and the, the pseudo-Christians, the pretend Christians, are lawless. What fellowship has light with darkness? Of course, light and dark have to do with truth, right, and falsehood. John eight twelve says this, when Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you have the light of life, you don't monk around with darkness. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. You're literally characterized as being of the light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let me just address the children for a minute. If you are here this morning as a child and your parents are Christian, your grandparents are about you, you are so blessed. How blessed it is to be able to come into the kingdom without having experienced all that's out there in the world. Some of us dabbled in the world a good bit. We can smell darkness <laughs> but we've been transferred out of that kingdom into the kingdom of light, you probably have never known much but that light. Don't go playing around the darkness to see what it's like. Trust your parents. Trust others who know what the darkness is like and listen to them. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? That idea of harmony there, Deborah Caldwell's going to love this one. It's It's where we get our word symphony, a symphony, an agreement of instruments, uh, I mean, if we're singing uh, sing choirs in New Jerusalem, what if Sam Tam had broken out with turkey and the straw in the middle of that, you know? Would that have been a little bit awkward, you know? Well, if you listen to a symphony, you can have 45 pieces up there. If one of them is off, it kind of messes up the whole thing. So we are to have symphony together, and there is no sympathy between Christ and Belial. Belial is an ancient name for the devil, and it's fun because it's the kind of it's probably the name he hates the most it means worthless worthless he who would replace god and rule over the whole universe in his on his dark throne is considered worthless there's nothing that uh, in common with christ and worthless with a capital w but notice this, This is as a Christian, you are in Christ, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? You see, we are in Christ, therefore we should never be in with worthless, with Belial. This expression of in Christ, or in the Lord, or in Him, occurs 164 times in Paul's writing. There is a union with Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are united with Him. He lives in you, you live for Him. You don't go dabbling around with devil stuff. And you don't allow those teachings to come into this church. You are the first line of defense. John three, first John three ten says this: By this, my ch- the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You remember this whole principle kind of goes back to uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We said a few weeks ago. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. The new things have come. We've been given a new life. And that means you've got to get rid of some of the old stuff. And what, uh, number four, what a believer has in common with an unbeliever. Of course, to believe is to trust in Christ. And those are not trusting in Christ are trusting in their own salvation. Or they're trusting in an idol to provide salvation. And this is what you see. When you, when you see, what was it, 58% of the so-called Christians say that you can be good enough to get into heaven? Yo, that's that's just not, that's not just um, wrong. It's heretical. It's insulting to a holy God. If that were the case, Jesus did not need to die. But boy, it is the American ideal, isn't it? We're going to take ourselves up by our brute straps and we're going, to, we're going to charge heaven. We're going to demand that we be let in. Really? You stand before that great white throne of judgment? Even someone as holy as Moses could have died if they had seen the face of God. You're going to defend your case without Christ there? Invictus is a poem written by William uh, Ernest Henley. And um, it's one of these just uh, such a great poem with such a bad message. <laughs> and, uh, but it kind of speaks to this principle that I, I can get myself into heaven. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. No, you're not. We need to rewrite this. Like we, it's like 16 lines, 13 of them are awesome. <laughs> but we need to finish that God is the captain of my faith. God is the captain of my soul. That's a pretty good point. But what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? That's what unbelievers think. They think they can just get into heaven because they're so good or because of some other God. Or oh, what agreement has a temple God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And this is his point here, that you are the temple of God. Let that sink in. Have y'all read the Old Testament? God coming in in fire, leading the people in the pillar of cloud by day and the fire at night, splitting the Red Sea, the dedication of Solomon's temple, God coming in to where the, the pressure was so that the priests couldn't stay in, that lives inside of you. That which cast the stars from his fingertips, spoke the world into existence, lives in you. You are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 13, he's already told him this. It, it, it's amazing how many things are repeated uh, how many times, just like I wish Paul would just say, like many of us who teach in college and in high school, just want to say every single day, would you please read the syllabus? I've written this to you. You know exactly what's to be expected today. No one ever reads the syllabus. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? That Shekinah glory comes in you. And he also tells us in 1 Timothy 4 that that in the final analysis, all false religions are, quote, the doctrines of demons. All false religions. This is what upsets people about Christianity, is the exclusive nature of Christianity. By the way, other religions are exclusive too, but no one seems to get upset with them. So you get somebody who does not worship Christ and is teaching something else, that that doctrine came from worthless. Came from Belial, did not come from God. I love Isaiah. Isaiah, I can't wait to meet Isaiah. He's just my favorite Old Testament prophet. And uh, uh, he's got a little bit of humor to him. And you think, yeah, the funny prophet. And uh, Isaiah 44 talks about this whole principle of idolatry. Now, and idolatry in America is probably different. We worship uh, I don't know, uh, physical features, we worship money, we worship success, we worship lots of other things. Uh, not many of us bow down to a statue. You go to India, it's very different. In India, there's a million gods and godlets. Why would you bow down to a godlet? I don't know, but that's the, what they have. But in Isaiah's day, it was literally you're bowing down to either, you're worshiping either Yahweh or you're worshiping Moloch, or Astra or Baal. But Isaiah 44, he kind of makes fun of it here. He says, he talks about the man who goes into the woods and surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half he burns in the fire over, uh, over his, this half he eats meat and he roasts it. And roasts it and his roast is satisfied. He eats his roast and satisfied. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a God, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me, you are my God. That's funny stuff. I mean, if I read that 2,000 years ago, Peter would be going, oh, stop, you're killing me. <laughs> Literally, you take a, a log, you cut it in half. This way, you're going to make, you put in your oven, and you're going to keep warm. And then this one, you chisel into some kind of beast, and you bow down to it. Think, <laughs> it's the same wood. And yet, this is right where Paul is. And in a less obvious way, that's the same way we are. We are just, as Paul, Calvin says, the human heart is an idol factory. So to sum up those five uh, kind of illustrations, there's five questions. Your true Christians are righteous, light, genuine followers of Christ, believers in the true gospel, and the true temple of God. The false Christians within the church are lawless, darkness, genuine followers of Satan or Belial, believers in false gospels, and uh, they are temple, uh, they, they are the temple of idols or they worship uh, idols. Basically, the answer to any the of these questions is they have nothing in common. That's why he's saying, "Don't be yoked with them." There's nothing in common. Their worldview is completely of the world, not of heaven. These spheres are mutually exclusive. So sometimes you have to make the hard decision, right? Now you see six supporting Old Testament verses. I'm going to go through these kind of quickly here, 16b through 18, because they're sort of snippets of verses, but he's trying to build his case going back to Israel's history, especially when Israel was, uh, uh, you know, came out of the Exodus and came back from Babylon, the promises that God was making to them to, to bring them comfort here. Uh, You see here, uh, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That comes from Leviticus 26 and Ezekiel 37 after the new covenant. There's There's an idea of personal, intimate relationship with the one true God. That's the glory of the new covenant. The law is not just on stone out there. It's actually in our hearts. And we have this unexplainable love for God. There's a relationship with him. Therefore, come out from their midst. Because of that, come out from their midst and be separate. It's not for you to, to, if I've saved you out of the pigsty, don't go back into the mire, right? And do not touch what is unclean. This is a reiteration of the idea of do not be bound together with unbelievers. If you walk with Christ, you don't run with any Christs. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here he's actually composed probably four different Old Testament verses from 2 Samuel, Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 20, Isaiah 43. But that idea of, y'all, you know, this, remember, this is Yahweh speaking, God speaking to you who are believers. I will welcome you. I will welcome you. You know, for those of you who haven't been home in a long time and you, you come home and your parents just embrace you and welcome you and, you know, there's the smell of fresh bread or where there's a fire going, whatever. I will welcome you. There's, he means all that relational love. To welcome means to receive and to admit into one's favor. You don't welcome someone who's going to break into your house. You welcome a family member. You welcome a friend. He's not treating us as slaves. Notice this, that you will be sons and daughters to me. Includes the women, which is wonderful. <laughs> you know, we have, I am sort of amazed by the, the, the femininity of some of the girls here. And you go to their house, and they're all little Disney princesses, you know, and everything's pink and, sh- and, and glittery and this kind of thing. Uh, and that wasn't like, <laughs> she, my poor daughter just got over the post-traumatic stress syndrome of being a, a sermon illustration for all these years, and she's come back to church today, so I couldn't resist. That wasn't the case in my household. We had Meg, who's here, uh, had three brothers, and we were history literature people, right? So Meg never wanted to be a Disney princess. She wanted to be Arwen, the she-elf, Eowyn of Rohan or Galadriel, and she would tell you now that in her motherly pregnancy state, she's actually more like Rosie Cotton Gamgee, uh, but but the fact is is that I can't think of a more appropriate thing than for a little boy or a little girl to play than a princess. And if we were to see some of the girls of the church um, uh, playing as little princesses, we might be we might be tempted to say, "Oh, that's make believe, folks. That's actually the reality." Every one of you who are born again, every one of you who are vessels of the Holy Spirit, every one of you who love Jesus are a princess or a prince of the king of the universe. That is not make-believe. And we have the word of God here to prove that. So it's not for you to go hang out in dungeons and in brothels and in cults. You have been selected, adopted by God Himself into the family of God. You are the greatest Disney princes and princesses that ever lived. You can't see it now, but the day that you can see it will come. That also make, makes us want to treat each other with some respect, right? So, as Hugh says, the Corinthians were full of uh, the full beneficiaries of the new covenant deliverance and restoration, and as such, they should pursue separation and holiness and that's where you kind of get to the one overall purpose in seven one. therefore having these promises what he's talked about before before beloved beloved notice the tender affection he has beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of the lord your doctrine informs your behavior And if you have a doctrine that puts God first and you want to exalt God, you will behave appropriately because of that. You're supposed to cleanse yourself from all defilement of flesh and spirit. It's all consuming. So when we're not to be bound with unbelievers, that includes the whole person of flesh and spirit. But this idea of cleanse ourselves, that's a reflexive pronoun. Notice that it's not going to happen apart from your effort. It is grace. It also requires sweat. And a lot of it. And we're all dysfunctional. we've all had bad backgrounds, we've all had issues that make some of us it's more difficult than others. But we live under the grace of God, He empowers us, but it's not going to just happen magically. You've got to make some effort. You've got to cleanse yourself. You've got to make some decisions. You've got to learn things. You've got to read good books, you've got to read the Bible. You've got to have family devotions. There's an un- uh, and then he goes on and says, "From all defilement, it, it, we sort of think of defilement as sort of lust and sexual immorality, but really, the the use of that same term in the Old Testament means religious defilement—to not defile yourself with a false faith, a false belief system." The Apostle Peter, uh, Peter reiterates this principle. Uh, that we're to have uncompromising moral standards as a son or a daughter of God. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which are yours, in ignorance. But like the Holy One uh, who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Isn't that amazing? I mean, didn't we just confess sins a few minutes ago? And yet God, if you were a Christian, God has nailed those sins to the cross. He's forgotten them. You are holy. You are holy. You are holy. I want to kind of sort of wrap up with a a negative example. Uh, And it's an example of of, of an Old Testament character who had every possible benefit and squandered it. Y'all, we have every possible benefit. We cannot squander it. The world needs this church. The world doesn't need another compromising church. The world needs a church that's going to be light in darkness. It's going to be truth. This, the, the, the people of God are going to be holy. They're going to act with all their failings. They're going to act like uh, princes and princesses, but not one that's going to say, we don't want to do with you, you dirty, unclean people. But who's going to give the gospel to those dirty, unclean people like someone gave to us when we were dirty, unclean people? I refer back to 1 Kings chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along, among them the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Amorite, Edomites, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall, here it is again, you shall not associate with them, nor shall you aso- they associate with you. For they will surely turn your heart away from, after their gods. There was a warning there, right? Solomon held fast in these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtra, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Amorites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord fully, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is the east of Jerusalem, and Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. And thus also he did for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrifice to their gods. And God said, Solomon, because you have done this, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you. And will give it to your servant. He did not follow the principle of being perfected in holiness because he became unequally yoked with idol worshipers. You know, see, we we think we can afford this little sin. We think we can afford this mistake with this error. We think we can just ignore doctrine and it doesn't really matter. You cannot. You cannot. How many of you have known zealous what you thought were Christians who started off with you, and now they're no longer anywhere to be found? They've gone the way of Belial, worthlessness. The apostle told the Corinthians back in chapter 5, verse 1, when we think about this idea of perfecting holiness of the fear of God, therefore we also must have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his bodies, his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That time is coming. It is guaranteed that one day you're going to stand before God. And the question is going to be, how did you live your life for me? How did you worship? Did you embrace these principles, these truths? Folks, we, that's a day that we're all going to face and we got to prepare now to have the holy confidence that we need to be able to show the Lord that we were actually faithful stewards with the talents He gave us. That's the adventure of this life. It really is. There's an adventure in perfecting holiness a part of it is to avoid the unholiness. You can't do it alone. You need a church. You need people who can do this together. And you need to, do, you need to read and understand these principles because there's always this opportunity out there for you to compromise. Let us be people of faith who pursue holiness and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Father, I pray that you would help us with this. We have all failed. We've all compromised, and by your grace, you have brought us back into the fold. There are some now who are even tempted to go uh, the way of Solomon. And it's amazing to us, Lord, how so often it's success that drives us away from you. Not tragedy, not temptation, but success. So let us go to school on the others who have gone before, who have turned their back on the grace of God, and let us... Know the truth of Holy Scripture and be able to explain good doctrine to help others. For there are many people, no fault of their own in a sense, that are just enmeshed in this compromise. Help us to bring light into darkness and let our church be a lighthouse in a dark community. In Christ's name, amen. Let this be our prayer of commitment as we sing this final hymn, God, that we want to be those who are seeking to be perfected in holiness. Take my life and let it be, hymn number 585. Please rise.